3: PlushCare.com weight loss.
4: LMFM podcasts with CNC carpets. We bring the showroom to you or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dremiscan. Call 87 660 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 14th
5: of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you've been hearing on LMFM's news this morning, another protest is to take place today against the closure of of the emergency department at Our Lady's Hospital in Navin. Ain't two is Padder the chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign, is on the line. Isn't a very good morning to you once again, Padder Tobin. Now, you're asking people to go to Dr Stevens hospital between 12 and 3 today. It's an awful awkward place to get to on a Friday afternoon, isn't it?
2: Well, first of all, it's, it's an important event. Uh, this will be a picket of the HSE head office in Dublin. And this is where all the senior management of the HSC um, operate and reside uh, and work. So we want to send a strong message to the HSC that the people of Meath are simply not going to allow for this closure to happen. And we're asking people, if they can, um, to attend it. Um, there will be lifts um, that will be available from the Fairgreen and Navin from yeah. half ten, uh, beside Jackson's uh, barber there. So if people don't have transport themselves, if they make their way down to the fair green, uh, there will be a number of cars there okay. with spaces.
5: You'd really stuff, want to be committed going, going at half ten. Uh, it'll probably be five or six o'clock before you get back uh, at that hour on a Friday evening. Well, to get so back I, from that part of Dublin, uh, we're have, up we're I, we're up around James' Gate, uh, opposite Houston st- uh, Station. Around there, isn't it?
2: Houston Station. So it's, yeah. it's not too bad. Access wise, um, we're, we're going to access it by the Phoenix Park, and um, it's just opposite, across the road from Houston Station. And uh, there's a big door on a lovely 17th century building there. Um, and we're, we're, we're gathering there to send a message with a picket, but also to deliver a letter to the uh, chief executive, the acting chief executive of the HSE, Stephen Mulvaney, who's taken over since uh, Paul Re- uh, Reid has resigned from his position. Mm. And, you know, I think really one of the, 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 the messages that we will have today is that the HSE should give the Save Navin Hospital campaign uh, their debt of gratitude and their thanks uh, for stopping the HSE, closing the um, A&E last June as was planned because the A&E in, in Navin is absolutely packed out at the moment. There are people on trolleys and there are, the ICU is full with people on, with COVID. They've had to reopen wards uh, in the hospital because of the lack of space and there is enormous pressure on the staff there in the hospital. And if the HSE had their way, that would be all closed mm. and those people would be in Drahada Hospital, adding to the, the pressure and stress uh, that exists there. So, By the way, so there's
5: nobody who who would be more familiar with uh, the hospital in Navin than Stephen Mulvaney, who, as you say, is now the acting CEO of uh, the HSE. He was uh, t- head of uh, the HSE for the North East for a good number of years.
2: Yeah, so we're hopeful that there's a change of guard now uh, in the HSE and potentially there'll be a change of guard uh, in the minister's position. Uh, come Christmas as well, because there will be a reshuffle of the Cabinet, uh, and that we won't have the same, let's say, um, determination that we saw within the previous uh, management uh, to actually close the A&E, that there might be some chink of light in terms of uh, people seeing that the importance of the A&E, and that they might see that it's time to see can a future be developed with proper investment, uh, proper staffing, proper resources to make sure that it operates to the satisfaction and the standards that we demand. So yeah, no, we, we're we're hopeful that uh, we've got over the worst of it, and um, we're we're proud of a campaign. I want to say this as well because everybody told us that it was, we, we, you know, we weren't going to be able to stop this. You know, we were told that it's a done deal. People mm-hmm. had their heads down, and I have to say that's not the case. Uh, the hospital campaign has managed to to stop the actions uh, of uh, senior H- HSC um, staff at this stage.
5: Yeah, uh, and well, it's a we, stay of execution. Uh, we don't know the future. You're right, yeah. we don't mm-hmm.
2: know the future. and I'm not claiming that this mm-hmm. is a done deal by by any means.
5: It seems like but the ED is safe for the winter, uh, because uh, the winter plan was published this week, was it, or, or last week? Uh, but I- I- in that, uh, they say that there will be individual plans for each of uh, the 29 uh, emergency departments uh, across the country, which means there will be uh, an emergency department plan for Navin.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with your assessments there, Michael. I think you're right. Um, I think uh, now it is impossible to tell the mind of the HSE at times, and sometimes they make the, most, the craziest decisions. So this is not a done deal. But I would be hopeful that um, the HSE would leave the A&E function uh, throughout the, the winter period. It would be madness, in my view, that under such pressure... Uh, going into a winter period where you're going to have flu, where you're going to have COVID, and the normal pressures on the A&E, it would be madness uh, that anybody would think of closing the A&E uh, over the winter period. You know, the, the, the context of this debate, the whole discussion that we've had, is that the HSE is in crisis in terms of the lack of capacity in A&E. We have the record waiting times currently in A&Es across the country, and yet this management within the HSE Sort to close capacity. Now, my view on why that's happening is this. I believe that the HSC are only measuring the outcomes for patients once they get through the door in a hospital. So they have very clear key performance indicators. They, they have measurements to indicate how the, the HSC is functioning, and, but they, on, they only kick in once a person has crossed the threshold and has been triaged in an A&E. But the problem is that a significant proportion of of difficulties that happen in the health service are before people get in, are in the waiting lists that people experience before they get into A&E. And a lot of the damage done to health and and life is actually happening in those waiting lists that sometimes in in, in the hospital service go on for years. So we need the government to start to measure the outcomes for all patients in and out of the health service uh, to make sure that we have a proper measurement and, therefore, development of the health service to, to make sure that people get the proper health care that they need.
5: So you're saying that the emergency department in Avon would be safe if uh, the waiting lists were shorter? I, I
2: have no doubt. I, okay. I have yeah, no but, doubt that if, if but, please, but they're not. <laughs> uh,
5: you know, uh, and uh, there's no prospect of uh, them getting shorter anytime soon. Uh, I think the driving no. force for this is that a number of people have come very close to death when they wouldn't have if they were in a hospital that was better
6: resourced.
2: Yeah, but listen, we've been calling for that resource for a number of years. And actually, it's interesting that the language of the Minister for Health is now actually starting to mirror the language of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. We said very clearly that at the start, Rod, that the HSE plan was simply shifting risk from Navin to drada And we believe that that is not a solution. We need to fix the risk at Navin. There's no point in simply shifting the risk and danger to patients. From one hospital location to another, the objective yeah. of any reasonable health service would be to fix that risk. And, and now Minister Donnelly is actually using those exact words uh, when he appears on radio stations and um, uh, uh, across the country. Unfortunately, he's still refusing to be held to account uh, in this region. And um, one other point I want to say in this is this is really important as well. David English stated very openly on radio and in public meetings in Navan that there would be included in the review, a future for Navin and it would be uh, there would be a feasibility study done to see you know does Navin have a future? What would it cost to bring it up to the necessary standard? It's, it has to be made very clear that never happened, mm-hmm. and the HSE themselves admit that that there was no study into uh, a future for Navan. Mm-hmm. Any? In- I,
5: I don't remember the minister saying that, but you, certainly uh, no. Uh, and reason a to think that there would have been a, a, any feasibility study no. done. The, what has happened is the review uh, to look at the process for closing it safely so that the problems in Drogheda that people are fearful of won't actually be realised. Uh, but sure, it's so going to happen and it, it seems as though the emergency department uh, by all accounts, by informed sources, information would be closing in March or April of next year.
2: Well, we've heard that uh, a number of times, and uh, as I said to you before, a number of times we have managed to to stop the HSC. And that, I think, this shows that the Save Navin Hospital campaign is, beyond a doubt, the most successful hospital campaign that's in the country. As you know from the start, and you've been following this for a long period of time, Navin was on a HICWA list of about 10 hospitals that the HSC sought to close, uh, and all but Navin uh, currently. Has a functioning
5: mm. It's nearly a decade ago, isn't it? That was 2013.
2: In, exactly. So, unfortunately, we don't want this situation. <coughs> it shouldn't be up to the people of Navan and Meads to keep going back to the well in terms of protest, mm. in terms of, of pressure. It's exhausting. There's an awful amount of work. Well,
5: that's involved. what I was saying at the outset. Uh, going up to Dr. Stevens Hospital is a big ask of people on a, a Friday afternoon. I, I take it you're not expecting that many people to turn out and protest today.
2: No, the plan today is, is, is not a protest. The, ta- mm. the plan today is a picket mm. of, St. Mm. Stephen's Hospital, uh, of his St. Stephen's Hospital. We know we'll have dozens of people there, and that's what we're expecting today. We're not expecting mm. a mass protest. Mm. We understand uh, that many people won't be able to make it. We do know that people are working in Dublin, and that many people are going to come down from their lunchtime um, to uh, stand with us outside of that. And the purpose of that is to send a letter and to try to engage with uh, Stephen Mulvaney, uh, in relation
5: to this. Yeah. Even you know, at that, though, it's off the beaten track for a lot of people. Uh,
2: but I will say this. Um, you don't underestimate yeah. the determination of the people of Meath in relation to this. Absolutely, we're not going mm. to have thousands or, or even hundreds of people there today. We know yeah. that. But there will be committed individuals who have time today mm. uh, who you know, will make it up to uh, uh, the hospital in Dublin,
7: yeah. uh,
2: who will travel on buses. Uh, some of them will have bus passes. Uh, some of them will drive up and there will be lifts organised yeah. uh, in the fair green in Navan. So, you know, this is, a, uh, this is a big ask for people. But there yeah. are many people, thankfully, uh, who have travelled a long journey with us in this campaign. Is,
5: uh, is, is it possible that people will tire of this whole issue to the extent, because it's going on so long, that it'll exhaust the protests?
2: I think um, we were acutely uh, aware of that danger uh, a number of months ago. Um, we were acutely aware that some people had their heads down and that some people were of the view that um, this was a done deal, that it was a lost cause. Um, and for us, that was probably one of our biggest threats because that's exactly what the HSC wanted to happen. Um, I think the HSC didn't expect the, the staying power of the hospital campaign or the people of made. Um, but thankfully, that didn't happen, and thankfully, thousands of people, you know, marched, mm. you know, recently in on the streets of Navan. Hundreds of people marched recently yeah. in Kells, and and you know, like the, the, the issue here is this is the most important piece of health and infrastructure that we have in the county by mm. far hundreds of lives
5: but you, you, you say that as if it's a, a bad thing as though um, the HSE is the enemy of the people when in fact the opposite is probably true, the HSE doesn't want protests, they don't want protests to be successful at stopping the closure of the emergency department because they feel with the expertise that they have uh, and the duty of care that they have to patients in the hospital that it's not safe and that unless you build it up uh, you've got to close it because you can't put people at that risk.
2: Well, can I say this? I honestly believe that the the, the the senior management in the HSC are absolutely, completely detached from the experience amongst most medics in this region in terms of the hospital uh, situation. But they've I had it they spelled are, out
5: for them in black a, a, and white. Uh, what uh, happened how it happened, uh, how people survived, uh, and how it was only for the grace of God that they survived because there wasn't the resource there uh, that would have been in place in a different hospital.
2: Michael, I I believe that the the HSE senior management are far removed from the people. I have no confidence in them at all. And I, I can tell but you... This is
5: being driven by the doctors in it. Navin, isn't it? And the, and the nurses in Navin. These, well, are, no, the it's, people, it's, these it's, are the people who, who've nearly lost patients and they said we shouldn't have been put in that situation.
2: Well, can I say, and, and let me just finish this point. There are many doctors and medics and nurses in the hospital in Navin who absolutely do not agree with the HSC. And it, there is no uniform view in, in terms of Navin, a amongst the medics. Indeed, 23... Hospital consultants in this region wrote a letter to the Minister for Health saying that it would be a threat to the health of people if the HSE went ahead and delivered disclosure. It's really important for mm-hmm. people to, be, to, to hear this because the HSE senior management are directly responsible for 1.3 million people waiting on hospital lists in this country. One in four people in this state are on a hospital waiting list. The HSE senior management are directly responsible for the longest waiting li- at times in any. Ever in the history of this state, you know, we, like there is no accountability in the HSC whatsoever. In in, in the South Curry Cam situation, situation, the HSC had a specialist mental health service for uh, children with with mental health issues. They had no specialist consultant uh, in place, and the doctor that was in place had no specialist mental health training. Now, in any other walk of life. The HSC would have been held to account for that, and somebody would have lost their job for that damage that was done. There's no accountability in the HSC. I have no faith in, in senior management, and I think they are actively doing damage uh, to uh, the health service in many parts of this
5: country. Okay, well if people want to join the Save Navin Hospital picket it. today, it's at Dr. Stephen's Hospital, get to Houston Station if you don't know where the hospital is and ask anybody and they'll show you it's uh, across the road. The picket is taking place from noon until three o'clock this afternoon. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's founder and leader of the ain 2 party, Peter Tobin.
8: Michael
9: Reed Reed on on
5: LMFM. As you know, at 11 minutes past 11 yesterday, students staged a mass walkout, standing up to a government which students say is failing them.
7: We're hoping um, for some acknowledgement that what came out in the budget wasn't enough um, and that more solid promises and that the promises will be stuck to and that everything that we ask for will actually be achieved because we're not actually asking too much. We're asking for housing, a living wage, and a place to exist within college, which I believe is every student's right. Uh I I don't believe we're asking for too
10: much.
5: That's uh, the USI's Hannah Brennan speaking to me yesterday. Now, let's uh, speak to Rose Conway-Walsh, who's a TD for Mayo and Sinn Féin's spokesperson on further and higher education, and Peter Burke, a Fine Gael TD for Longford Westmeath, the Minister of State with responsibility for local government and planning. Good morning to both of you. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Minister, first of all, do you accept that students are very upset with the government.
8: Absolutely, I do. And I fully understand why they are. And that's why we have given a significant response in the budget. But more importantly, because we're working very hard to increase accommodation numbers right across the country. Minister Simon Harris has now given priority through a cabinet subcommittee to unlock the viability issue in relation to technical universities and uh, universities building out student accommodation where viability is an issue with 650 beds hopefully coming uh, on stream in Galway next year but also in terms of trying to get support for students there like increasing uh, the grant getting the additional maintenance payment in December and also trying to support them next year which will be very important. So there's a lot of work going on but I do acknowledge the frustrations that are there and what I would say is that in the short term immediate response in digs.ie there are hundreds of bed spaces now available because we have increased obviously uh, 18 months ago the threshold for the rental room relief and now made changes where you can keep your medical card and your social welfare payments if you're relying on social welfare payment and you offer up a room in your own home to a student
5: Okay Um, The students know all that Minister Uh, 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 and they protested en masse despite everything you've just said, because it goes nowhere near far enough to give them what could be considered a a decent standard of living in this country.
8: Well, I absolutely appreciate that, but they haven't seen the 650 beds that are going to be there in Galway next year. Uh, A lot of these uh, construction projects are in the pipeline. And when people can't see them, the frustration obviously increases. And I can understand that. But they will see in December, right through the end of the year, the increase in payments that will support them. You have over 50,000 students who will be benefiting uh, from the increase in the student grant. That will be an assistance to them as they move to a very, very difficult Mm. time in December. And obviously, as I said, those bed spaces are available there. We've also accepted the Low Pay Commission's response to increase the... uh, minimum wage, that will take effect from January 1st so they wouldn't have seen that as yet and also the government has increased the threshold in terms of where Mm. students can work from 4500 up to 6500 and and it won't affect their uh, student grant.
5: But Minister, I think uh, in fairness to the students they're acutely aware of all of that they've assessed the budget and the other measures that you've mentioned and they've said the situation you've left us in is just disgraceful totally unacceptable
8: Well, I don't think it's the government that have left them in this situation. The government is trying to respond to a unique set of problems. We've had, you know, once-in-a-generation type events. We've had four of them over the last five years, from the climate emergency to Brexit to a a worldwide pandemic, which has put unprecedented challenges on the state, and now a war in mainland Europe where we have 55,000 Ukrainian citizens that were catering for this country through accommodation crises. So the government is trying to respond to, you know, Worldwide events uh, on a daily basis, and okay. it is very difficult. But we have mm. put through a very strong, robust mm. suite of measures. And a lot of what opposition were not giving those payments this year, they were going to start only giving them next year. Okay. So the has
5: I, I, I don't want to take away from any of those points that you've just made uh, um, because they're factual. Okay, <laughs> I don't, as I say, I don't want to take away from well, those, they but, are factual. But, but 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 minister, let me, if I could just ask the question, do you accept that the students believe? That the government has left them in this situation, which they believe is disgraceful and totally unacceptable.
8: No, my view is that.
5: No, no, not not your view. Do you accept that the students that the students believe that to be the case?
8: That's what I said in my very opening contribution. I said I fully understand and appreciate the frustration with the government. I understand why they're frustrated, and I'm trying to articulate they, the response. That they they just they, don't they just, don't, they
5: just, the just don't understand the nuances of it or the complexities of it. Is it?
8: No, I didn't see that. As I know, as someone who more than most is dealing with very vulnerable people in my clinic every Monday, when they come in looking for a home, and even though that home is coming few, four or five months' time in the future and they can't see it now, it is so frustrating and so... You know, gut wrenching for them and the uncertainty for their families. So I understand that. I'm dealing with very vulnerable people on a weekly basis. I'm at the court mm. base as a politician trying to help people uh, in that regard. So I can understand why they're frustrated.
5: Okay, let me go to Rose Conway Walsh. Uh, do you agree with the minister that there's a lot of problems? That, uh, I think there's a, a consensus uh, that we could all do a, an awful lot better. But do you agree with the minister that this is not the fault of the government?
10: But I don't uh, Michael, because I, th- and I think it was quite apt yesterday that the students walked out at eleven eleven as I said in the dole, <coughs> because uh, this government have been in position for eleven years, so this isn't something that's happened overnight now I acknowledge that there's some positive uh, measures in the budget um, but the, as the students wouldn't be out yesterday if they were if they were sufficient, the problem you have is that there's such a chronic underfunding of third level education and there has been since 2008 in terms of interventions and all that we know for exactly that there's 307 million funding gap uh, to be filled there in in higher education so you're starting from such a low base so if we look at some of the measures that were in 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 the um, in the budget, say for instance, the the thousand euro reduction in the undergraduate fees. Well, there are 11 member states where the, where they don't have any uh, any fees uh, whatsoever in it. So it will be Sinn Féin's policy to abolish the fees for third level. Then you look in terms of they 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 um, cut the fees as well for apprenticeships. But the country is in such a state that, and, and such a need for construction workers and apprenticeships that there shouldn't be fees there as a barrier. We also have nearly a billion uh, euro in the National Training Fund, That that should be used to cut the apprenticeship fees as well. So the students recognise that there are many things that that could be done. Now, one of the main things is that there absolutely has to be a financial intervention from government um, for mm. the on-campus uh, accommodation. Well, you got a, a, a
5: land when you were speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday because you asked the tarnish uh, if there was a, a way of uh, including student parents in the rent tax credit. Uh, uh, and the answer was, yes, we're looking at, at that. Uh, and you talked about the government being... Uh, in office for uh, 11 years. The Tarnasca also pointed out uh, that there's been huge change in the country and he asked you to rewind the clock 20 years. Uh, And if anyone could have projected the population growth then and that we would now be a country of 5.2 million people and so many people going to third level uh, education, it it was uh, a a pipe dream for generations before now uh, with few going. Uh, We've done an awful lot uh, and under uh, the stewardship of uh, the government uh, there's been great progress has there not in third level education
10: like Michael we haven't just landed here there has, been, uh, there has been progress in some areas but there are areas that are recognised by students that really need to be tackled now I do want to refer to the, the, the tax relief, the, the rent rebate and we have been pushing government since the budget to make sure because they were in a position where that wasn't going to be extended to students and we were making the point to them constantly, rent is rent. And if you are a parent paying out rent, then that has to be cast as rent. So you should be entitled to that rebate. Obviously, in our alternative budget, we allowed for $1,500 there on, under Ono Brin's budget. Uh, of of tax relief, but even the 500 for that to be extended. Mm. So that was good. I welcome that that Leo Bradshaw Mm. said Mm. that yesterday. Mm. But there was no no allocation in the budget for student accommodation. And to make those 3,000 beds, which are, are at an advanced stage, viable, and to make them so that they're available at an affordable rate for students, there has to be an intervention there. And I wanted... Simon Harris and the Minister for Housing to make that announcement immediately so that those projects could get off the ground and get up and running. It would be
5: easier though, wouldn't it, if there were fewer people in college? Would that be the solution?
10: It's not the solution. I think third level education needs to be open to everybody but Mm. obviously uh, as well uh, you know, apprenticeships have Mm. to form a big part of that Um, Earn as as you learn as well so there has to be, there has been some promotion of apprentices but there's a huge backlog in apprenticeships as well
5: Okay, let me go back to the Minister. Minister, have we bitten off more than we can chew in terms of uh, giving access to higher education Uh, because uh, if we didn't have so many people in third level we wouldn't have people sleeping in cars sleeping on couches and squatting uh, as was reported yesterday
8: no i think higher and third level education has transformed our economy over the last decade and beyond we have all-time high access rates from people from a varying types of backgrounds which never happened before, from diversity and disadvantage. Like, we have huge access, and I absolutely understand the frustration in terms of the support to ensure that retention and to get people through college. But we have so many multinationals in this country, and, you know, that's a significant risk that, uh, you know, of all the money we spend, um, less than an eighth of it is from corporation tax in this budget, in that €11 billion package. And they need highly educated, highly skilled uh, workers that we are producing in this country. It's one of our unique selling points. So it's helped us so much as an economy and it's mm. what we rely on. Okay, I mean, you know, but, goes,
5: but, 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 but are, are they getting the education they deserve? Are, are they getting the college life that they deserve? Are, are, are um, they right and entitled to feel failed if they're sleeping in tents or on a, a train for three or six hours a, a day uh, or going from house to house trying to bum a, a, a place on a, a couch that so they can put their head down for the night?
8: Well, they're definitely getting the education they deserve. I'm absolutely sure that. The problem is it's the student life. It's the issues that surround the quality in terms of their environment is very, very hard. And I fully accept that. And as you referenced there, so many experiences are very difficult that I meet on a weekly basis. But again, that's why we've made, you know, so many changes, like even reforming the adjacent rate, uh, which we did last year. And that will assist people uh, who are living closer to college to get more support as well, uh, as well as increasing the grants that I referenced earlier. And those are so Mm. important. And we also have the students uh, assistance fund, which has been increased uh, up to 17.1 million to assist yeah. people who find themselves in very difficult areas, as well as in- increasing mental health support. That's all there to help the students.
5: Yeah, I, I, you mentioned digs.ie, and I heard the to mention that in the doll yesterday uh, as well, and saying that there's loads of places uh, that students can find to stay on digs.ie. How much would they be expected to pay? Uh, we heard from USI yesterday that some people are being asked to pay 800 a month for digs.
8: It depends on the size of the, of the size of a room, the location, so I can't give you a, a figure of what a room would make. I, I don't know, Michael
10: yeah uh, Michael, but, can I just come in there just yeah. on, on, on a couple of things right, in terms of the digs yeah, it was welcome, and I want to thank uh, people who made rooms available. I mean, we had situations mm. in Galway where students had to go around knocking on doors just out of the blue and trying to get a room uh, for themselves, but there needs to be legislation there to protect. Uh, those students as well because what i'm hearing back from students is that while while it works for some for others there's Mm. curfews put on there's different conditions that doesn't make it conducive to somebody having 800
5: a a month don't don't use the fridge don't go into the kitchen don't bring friends home etc yeah Yeah.
10: so it's not a long-term solution the longer-term solution is that you would have The accommodation owned by the institutes, the intervention from government, and then on condition that they're made affordable, because some of the private providers, what they're doing is providing really high-end accommodation that's way beyond the reach of any Irish student. Um, So the, the the market that's targeted, they are very wealthy students. But when, uh, very well wealthy foreign students. Not the fact that they're foreign, mm-hmm. but like they have to. If someone pays eighteen hundred, two thousand a month for for accommodation, that's beyond the reach of most uh, most people and most ordinary uh, families here. In terms of the education and the quality of education and what's available now. There needs to be many more in-demand courses on. So for medicine, not only from a workforce point of view, a workforce planning point of view, but say in in medicine and in other areas, veterinary. I mean, we've only one veterinary college in the whole of the island of Ireland. So most of our students to train to be vets are forced to go abroad. We should be able We have a small population across this island. Of course, we want to encourage north, south and south, north uh, transition Mm -hmm. of students as well. But we, 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 if we cannot provide an education on the island of island for our, our, our students, then we need to, to look at where we're going wrong. And there needs to be an honesty. Yeah. We've had the SUSIE review. The SUSIE review said we needed a 25% increase in the maintenance grant. Well, while, the, while this budget went some way towards that, it didn't go to the 25%. That would have cost 29.2 um, a million. So there are many things need to again in terms of our PhD students. There was a 500 euro increase there, but there's others. There's the ones that are trained by the Irish Research Council and the, the Science Foundation Ireland. Um, they are uh, excluded from that. So many um, re- uh, PhD researchers mm. are excluded again from that, and their, okay. their stipend is extremely low, so they're struggling. Many of those were uh, out uh, protesting yesterday well, There well. were so
5: many people so, out. Yeah. I, I, I think accommodation, though, topped the list of uh, concerns uh, that students have. And let me finish with that, uh, with uh, the Minister, uh, because uh, as Rose Conway Walsh pointed out in the doll yesterday, the government has lots of information at its fingertips about demographics and if you look at the amount of children in primary school today, you'll know uh, in 20 years uh, who's going to be going to college uh, and so on um did the government not look or plan for this 11 years ago or 10 years ago or nine years ago or why is the crisis uh, as severe as it is now
8: well a few points there in the first sense is nine years ago we had imf in this country we were borrowing 50 percent more than we were taking in income the country had no capacity to build houses secondly we have uh, a huge record uh, population in this country that was unforeseen uh, five years ago, not a decade ago, in terms of the length of life, people are living better quality of life that the general public has, and the stats are bearing that out. But we are responding in large scale in delivering student accommodation now, as I said, 670 beds in Galway, uh, for one instance, which will be true next year, and other areas as well. So, but we have to be honest with people, we've heard there from Rose who wants free student fees, free apprenticeships, more on the other side, uh, courses for veterinary and better standards. So how are you going to raise the money? So I think we need to be honest with people as well. When we're calling for better conditions, more courses, better funding. If you're not honest in how you raise that money, it sounds good, but how do you deliver it? That's the question.
5: All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you both for joining us on the programme this morning. Rose Conway-Walsh is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on further and higher education and a TD for Mayo. Peter Burke is a Minister of State with Responsibility for Local Government and Planning and a Fine Gael TD for Longford-Westmeath.
8: Michael Michael Reed on LMFM.
5: If you've been good enough to get in touch with us today, thank you. Uh, we always appreciate your comments. Paddy Duffy is quite often, and barely a day actually goes by without Paddy uh, getting in touch and it's always appreciated. Paddy today says he'd recommend that people vote for another 11 years of Fine Gael government if they want a better housing supply, a better health service, better waiting lists, free education in all third levels, uh, better social services and just a better little country to emigrate from. Thanks, Patty, for that. Uh, we'll expect uh, the postcard when you get down under. Uh, Marion Kilmesson says, well done once again to Patrick Tobin for his dedication to the Navin Hospital campaign. A shining light, he is, she says. And she goes on to say, I hope I live to see him as Taoiseach. Uh, there'll be a lot of work for the aint 2 party to do for that to happen, I think, Mary, but you never know. Thank you. Uh, we'd uh, a call or a text, actually, from Margaret in Navin uh, saying, uh, Damien English said in his election campaign that Navin would have a spanking new hospital Uh, and what happened to the site that was purchased from Tara Mines? Thanks uh, for that, Uh, Margaret. I think uh, that was two election campaigns ago when all of the election candidates for Fine Gael and Mead promised a brand new hospital and were on the front page of the Mead Chronicle. Was it a day or two days before The actual election itself, I don't know, but uh, a lot of people said at the time it must have been a stunt so close to the election and could have influenced the outcome. Uh, But of course... uh It's been long forgotten about Eileen. Thank you for your call to the program as well. Eileen said she was listening to comments on the program yesterday about a shortage of GPs and getting appointments, and how difficult that is in Meath. Uh, Eileen is in Drogheda, and she says it's uh, the same in Drogheda. She goes uh, to a practice with a couple of doctors, and it's almost impossible to get an appointment. Is it that practices are taking on too many patients? She wonders, or is it that there are not enough practices? She wonders. I think uh, the answer is is that there's not enough doctors, uh, quite simply put. Thanks uh, for that. A uh, couple of comments that didn't come to yesterday. Uh, we were talking uh, about uh, the difference in the price of briquettes in trim. I think it might be the same caller, but they said there's a huge difference in the price of coffee and trim. Four euro in the difference uh, in different places. Uh, and Mags and RD uh, sounded very frustrated when she texted saying, can you please advise me? I'm one of the people who are waiting to get my C- NCT done, which was due in August. I asked my daughter to book one for me, but because it would be next year, she's waiting, hoping to get a cancellation for me or something like that. Uh, What worries me is, what if the guards stop me? Jenny, you're asking for advice, Mags. Uh, I I suppose um, if I was to give you the advice uh, to the letter of the law, it's don't drive your car because it's an offence to drive your car without an up-to-date NCT cert. You can be fined €2,000. You can get five penalty points. You could end up in prison for three months. Uh, But... Uh, between you and me if you like uh, I I think what's happening is the guards are taking a discretionary approach to it they know that people are waiting an inordinate amount of time Uh, somebody was telling me that they printed off, they have uh, a date for their NCT test uh, which is I think in April or something but they printed off the appointment and they have it on their windscreen so that if they're ever stopped they can show it to the guards uh, and maybe that's something to do and maybe the guard will use their discretion and understand that you can only get a test if it's possible to get a, a test and that it's quite impossible to do that at the moment but thank you indeed Max for getting in touch Michael,
3: Michael
4: Reed, Reed on LMFM, on LMFM.
5: Now, tomorrow is the International Day of Rural Women. It's an event which is being marked by the National Women's Council. Uh, Let's uh, speak to Catherine Lane, who is the Membership and Engagement Coordinator with uh, the Women's Council and is organising this conference uh, that's taking place today. Uh, A very good morning to you, Catherine, and thank you indeed. Uh, I'm sure it's a day to celebrate women in rural Ireland, uh, but also a a number of issues uh, that uh, will be looked at uh, by those attending.
9: Good morning, Michael, uh, and hello to all your listeners. Yeah, we're delighted to be here in Monaghan. It's a lovely sunny morning here in the Four Seasons and a lovely gathering of women from across the island of Ireland who are going to be talking about um, the issues that are facing women in rural communities. They're going to be celebrating the the contribution of women that often goes unacknowledged in our policy and in our decision-making structures. So we're delighted. We have a range of speakers um, talking about issues such as violence against women. They're going to be talking uh, about projects that they're trying to deliver and organise on. We have uh, women talking about climate action. We have women talking about the cost of living. We have uh, women from migrant backgrounds here. We have women from the traveller community. What we really wanted to do was reflect the diversity of women who live and work in rural Ireland to celebrate that um, and to send a strong message that women from all backgrounds in rural communities should be supported to participate mm. in all decision making uh, you know, spaces that affect their lives and the importance of investment in public services. That's a key message for us today uh, as we mark International Day of Rural Women and we've really um, seen this issue come to the forefront as we've organised this conference in terms of the uh, challenges for women who don't have car, who don't have access to a car in getting around just that the poor public transport provision is a real barrier to women's equality in okay. rural
5: communities right. you've answered uh, or preempted uh, one of my questions uh, because I was going to ask you uh, if uh, there's a difference uh, between women in rural communities and those in urban I suppose transport is one obvious difference.
9: Absolutely. It's that, I suppose, that the, the underinvestment in services that can really support women to participate, whether it's healthcare, childcare, and transport. They're really key. to to women being able to take up job opportunities, education opportunities and be able to participate politically uh, and socially and culturally in their local areas. And where there is any cutback or underinvestment in public services, that really hits women in rural communities very hard. Um, Also, we really want to highlight the additional barriers for many women, uh, particularly from marginalised backgrounds who experience violence against women and the importance of our rural development strategy, naming that and, and taking action around that. There's many barriers, transport obviously being one in terms of women who are seeking protection or trying to, uh, you know, uh, get away from a, an, an abusive relationship. But there's, you know, things like the maybe underinvestment in Garda.
3: Get started today at plushcare.com slash loss That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash loss
9: Infrequent court sitting times can be barriers for women. And as we all know, facing into a winter and into the cost of living crisis, there are a lot of higher costs that many rural households have to bear. Um, like those fuel costs, Uh, like those heating costs, and particularly women who are parenting alone and old women living alone will feel those very hard. So it's really important Mm. that uh, where decisions are being made uh, and where people are being asked to maybe change their behaviour to try and meet our climate obligations, that they're really supported to do that. Um, so that's why it's important that we have the minister here today, she's going to address the conference um, and we're we're delighted to have the opportunity to raise these issues with her Mm. uh, as she has responsibility for uh, our rural future which is the rural development strategy for, you know, until 2025.
5: Heather Humphreys, I suppose uh, uh, a woman from rural Ireland who who, uh, is possibly different than many women from rural Ireland in that she holds uh, one of the highest offices in in, uh, the country, Uh, but women in rural ireland uh, have developed an awful lot in in recent years i mean you don't have to go back that long ago uh, when you would have spoken about women in rural ireland uh, as farmers wives uh, and that really was as much as anybody could have aspired to there's very little difference really in terms of mindsets and ambition now between women across the country whether they live in rural communities or urban communities
9: Absolutely, um, the ambitions, like you say, are, are there. It's just sometimes the opportunities maybe are not the same. Um, I think the minister is a great example of of a woman who's come through, for example, local government who served as as a as a, 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 a councillor, and that's a really important pathway to ensure we have more diverse women as well in the doll. Um, and we know the underrepresentation; it's very stark in many of our rural. Uh, Uh, constituencies where there's a real stark underrepresentation of women. What we're also um, calling for is the introduction of gender quotas as one of a whole range of measures that's required to ensure that women can equally participate uh, across all of our council chambers Um, and that's, that's a really important area um, many, I suppose, of the decision-making spaces in rural communities maybe continue to be dominated by men. Um, so we do need to address that and we do need to uh, put measures in place that can support women who maybe have caring responsibilities um, to to take an active role in decision-making in their local communities. I think what's really important is that what women have told us, uh, we've done focus groups with women around the country. We had a survey where over 800 women participated is while we want mm. rural areas, they're beautiful places, and people spoke about the scenery, the, the peace and quiet, the safety that they feel they can raise their children in, these are really important uh, attributes or qualities you know, to live in a rural area. But we don't just want areas where it's nice for people to visit. Mm. We want people to have a future and feel have a sustainable future. Yeah.
5: And realise um, those ambitions. I mean, broadband was one of the big issues that women raised with you.
9: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're all aware of the potential that remote working can offer many groups who are distant from the labour market or who uh, want those flexible opportunities. But unfortunately, in many areas, that's not going to be possible for women to avail of that if they don't have uh, that that good connection or or, or that reliable broadband where they still maybe have to travel long distances into an office um, and then the costs associated with that so that that is another key i suppose infrastructure that can really support women, and we also saw over the pandemic just uh you know that flexibility that was there, the hybrid options for people to tune into things online, take part in things online. We saw many councillor council business uh taking taking place online, and I think there's about there's seventeen now of our uh local authorities that are streaming their meetings online, which is great in terms of opening up this to the public, people can see what the business of local government is, they can engage, they can see what the role of a councillor is and, 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 and that can demystify what it's all about and hopefully open up that uh, opportunity to, to many others as well who are, are currently underrepresented in, in uh, across our local authorities.
5: Mm, and I, I suppose like all people in rural Ireland uh, women are, are no different and can often feel isolated and would like to feel safe for living where they do?
9: Absolutely. I think that uh, what kind of infrastructure can keep women feeling safe? Um, It is the services, and many service providers are here today to talk about the different uh, strategies and responses they've developed particularly in areas like West Cork, where it can be, you know, two hours for a woman to travel, maybe to, you know, to to get a barring order or Mm. to get a service, Uh, and then how is she going to arrange childcare? So it's really critical that those services that are delivering on the ground in these rurally and remote-based places um, are able to have a voice, you know, in terms of how these services are designed and the investment that, that is directed towards these services as well because there is a I suppose there is an additional challenge there um, when people are very disconnected women as well have spoken about you know that while living in a rural area there's great uh, sense of belonging mm. there's great sense of people looking out for each other mm. but sometimes uh, there can be if you're if you're someone that is a bit different mm. um, or you don't fit the status quo that can be a challenge to be yourself fully and um, so maybe if you're an LGBT woman, for example, or right. a migrant woman, it can be harder sometimes um, to fit in yeah. or if you're experiencing mental health or experiencing domestic violence issues that sometimes yeah. um, women can feel not very supported by everybody in the community okay. great, great or sense can feel of silenced.
5: Great sense of community, but sometimes a, a closed community and uh, on the subject of violence uh, perhaps worth mentioning Aisling Murphy uh, because I know in uh, the survey uh, one woman in particular said that she hasn't walked alone since Aisling Murphy passed uh, away. Uh, There's uh, a lot of concern I'm sure like that uh, across the country but particularly in isolated areas and you've mentioned domestic violence uh, quite a a number of times uh, and that undoubtedly uh, is as prevalent in rural communities as it is elsewhere. Yes.
9: Uh, I mean, this is something that affects all women. But unfortunately for some women, there's those additional challenges and obstacles for for them to live lives free from violence. Uh, And we know, for example, you know, traditionally that women might uh, move to a new area to, you know, to maybe start a relationship or have a family. So um, their family networks might not be there. They may not have the same connections because they're not traditionally from the area. And that's the same for women from migrant backgrounds as well. Uh, who can be very maybe dependent on a partner around their legal status um, or who don't feel maybe the same um, level of protection Um, but in in terms of I suppose the role of um, local authorities as well and councils you know things like our public spaces, street lighting footpaths all can help I think women feel safer And uh, I know, again, like you said, that you quoted that that one um, experience from one of our survey respondents, but many other women said that about, you know, not once the winter sets in, you know, not going out uh, in the evening and certainly not going out on your own. And um, unless maybe you live in a town where you feel that there's lots of people around. So it is having an impact on women's daily lives. So it is something we really need to factor and uh, and consider.
5: Okay. well, you'll undoubtedly have a a lot of discussion today uh, and uh, the Minister will uh, address your conference and I'm sure we'll be hearing much from it throughout the day. Uh, And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, to mark International Day of Rural Women. Catherine Catherine Lane uh, is uh, the Membership and Engagement Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland.
8: Michael Michael Reid on on LMFM. LMFM.
5: Now, the Joint Committee on Agriculture, Food and Marine has published a report on issues that impact on the welfare of dogs in this country. It follows six days of meetings that the committee held between June of last year and May of this year. They looked at issues like ear cropping, microchipping, the sale and supply of dogs and dog breeding. Uh, the committee say that it, it is important to look at all of these issues and the increase of canine fertility services and how That is being performed and that there should be a public awareness of dog welfare issues in this country. Let's hear more about this. Uh, The chair of the committee is Fianna Fáil TD, Jackie Cattle, who's on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Jackie Cattle. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, There's a lot of people uh, who have no awareness of a, a lot of these issues I'd have to say I, I figure as one of them tell us a, a little bit a, about your report because I think a lot of us will be concerned to learn that there's a, a lot of pain and suffering being caused to dogs and technically or legally if you like people aren't doing anything wrong or, or breaking the law as such
2: well, yeah I
0: suppose definitely the, the um, legislation needs, needs to be tidied up and that's you know the basis that was just said we had extensive um, uh, extensive consultation at the committee and uh, we've made recommendations and I suppose, you know, made recommendations on legislation for, K- for canine welfare and, you know, I suppose one actually, while people wouldn't be aware of legislation, I think you know, people, everyone you talk to in the street would want to make sure that the, that the proper legislation is there to protect take dogs and, there was one year cropping of dogs which, you know, is a completely commissary commiss- commiss- you know, it's is just a a, a, a exercise, and it's you know um, that that's against the law. And um, you know, we need to strengthen legislation to ensure that you know the people who do this you know are, are brought to justice and and the proper fines imposed. Um, you know, you, you mentioned insemination there as well, and insemination performed not under veterinary supervision or by veterinarians. You know that's not as illegal as well, but it is happening, and especially on puppy farms. You know that has to that has that has to be the laws on that have to be enforced as well. And I suppose the microchipping of dogs is essential as well. That you know where where that dog is found um, to be min- to be mistreated, that we can fully trace it to the owner immediately. That you know that it, as it stands at the moment, the dog could be registered to someone, but it could have moved on twice or three times since then. So we need microchipping and proper traceability to ensure you know, if something does go wrong with a dog and there is welfare issues, that you know, the, the, the person who is responsible can, can be held accountable. So you know there is a lot of uh, very practical recommendations in the report we will be, that will be discussed in the Senate in two weeks' time and hopefully discuss it all shortly after. And we hope that and I think the, the, the relevant ministers will take on board the recommendations report because they are all common sense, and you know, all for the benefit of the welfare of the cane animal, which we all aspire to do.
5: Okay, so it's illegal to crop a dog's ears, is it? Uh, but not illegal to own a dog with cropped ears.
0: That's exactly it, and um, you it's a nail in the head, so that needs that needs that needs to be sorted out. And you know, it's the, the person that buys the dogs buys them with ears cropped, and there's no one then canning the can for for, for that, that barbaric practice. So, you know, I think we have to we have to improve the legislation there that if you have a dog whose ears is cropped that you're responsible for that and that will stop the purchase of dogs um, with their ears cropped and mm. obviously if there's not sale for dogs um the, the practice will, 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 will stop immediately. And you know, it's just it's just done for cosmetic reasons and mm. um, it just it, it makes absolutely no sense. And you know that's just one of, one of the items, one of the items there. That well, 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 has, has just, a just explain
5: it to me, uh, if you will, uh, um, indulge me uh, and my ignorance. Uh, is it cutting ears? It's,
0: uh, yeah, chopping chopping off part of the chopping
5: dog. chopping. Yeah, I thought as much. I was almost afraid to ask. Why would anybody do that to a dog? Well, is it,
0: it's. Is it? I suppose some people think it improves the appearance of the dog Right. and that uh, um, certain breeds of dogs, and uh, you know, have large ears mm. and that um, to, to, to crop their ears improves the okay. appearance.
5: Uh, and will they sell for a better price, is it?
0: Yeah, yeah but like right. they have oh. large ears yeah. that came by nature, they have them for a reason. And, you know, it would be particularly in, in certain breeds of dogs. But it's it's just a barbaric practice and... Um, you know, you can imagine the pain of brings Unfortunately, You know, fortunately, the dog can experience pain for a long time after. It's not just, you know, it's not, mm. not just a like piece in your ears that is a once-off. It can have a serious impact on dogs going forward. So, you know, the nature is that for these the breeds of the dogs, for whatever reason, have large ears. And I think we should let nature run its course and not, to, and most definitely not be interfering with it. And it's, it's a barbaric practice that needs to be stamped out completely.
5: Mm. Right, uh, uh, it doesn't warrant. It doesn't warrant thinking yeah, about. it. It's absolutely dreadful, it. yeah, absolutely dreadful. Uh, but uh, I, I take it There's that
0: farms as well. Yeah, you know, where, like the amount of people that are employed there, the amount of beaches that are on those farms. You know, that all needs to be regulated, and I think there has to be a certain amount of staff for whatever number of dogs is there. And you know, in the greyhound industry, you have strict controls on the number of litters that a beach can have in our lifetime, and that's done for the welfare of the beach and um, the same thing needs to be done in these puppy farms that needs to strict control of the amount of litters that, that can be bred right. and I think the amount of, of, of litters that can be on any one premises and then you have cases where there could be you know a, a, a vast amount of breeding bitches with very little, uh, little labour supervision over them and that leads to welfare issues yeah. as well, obviously.
5: Because spell that out, that. If, spell that out if you would, because you're talking about up to f- up to 500 bitches in some of these yeah. puppy farms, uh, and how many staff would be uh, looking after the do- the dogs?
0: Well, not, not not making you a smart or smart answer. most definitely not enough. Yeah. And I, uh, there's recommendations there that uh, in the report about how many how many um, how many staff you would want per per per, per breeding mm. bitches on on. on in an establishment and like when, when breaches are breeding, you know, it is very labor intensive to ensure there's proper welfare there. Mm. And uh, you ask anyone that's looking after a bitch, you know, when they're helping down pups, and uh, you know, it's, so pups can be delicate, they can need, you know, they can need um, very intensive, very intensive, intensive, intensive treatment when they're born and looking after and making sure they're kept warm especially in the first couple of hours and the first couple of days. Mm. So it's like if, if there's too many pups in a place and they obviously have to be in a clean, warm environment as well. And, um, you know, that's essential for, you know, proper breeding establishments. And, you know, puppy farms, if you want to have that amount of dollars, it, it's just, uh, I don't think, you know, the definitely at the moment there's not adequate staff in place for those breeding establishments. Aye. And um, we're not talking about the person keeping two or three beaches for breeding or even, yeah, even nine or ten beaches for breeding. And then, um, but with these very large puppy farms, mm. um, legislation or regulation has
5: to be improved. There, uh. yeah. Um, so we're talking about people using dogs as machines, basically. Uh, uh, you said the well, premises fact, should be co- fact, should fact, be of be- Pups as what, what I
0: would call it, I suppose. Okay, it's just producing pups for sale and um, mm. really no um, no um, space or enjoyment for the dog. You know, a, a dog as you know yourself, my mm. like dog loves to go to be the space and yeah. all around. Them. Mm. Or stick to a dog and have him follow it or whatever, yeah. and um, there's none of that done in in, in, in these establishments.
5: They're, they're not walked, uh, and I, I take it from what you said, uh, they're not leave, living in clean conditions, uh, and they're cold.
0: Well, if you have that many dogs, they're definitely not going to have the adequate space that they need um, to to walk around and energize. Enjoy, and enjoy like dogs, love a bit of space, love to tear around. You know, run around after each other and be playful in it. In, in you know, in, in whatever segment of a garden or yard that they have, they have to do things in, and if not that many dogs, it's not possible. Hmm. To give them adequate space and 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 the infrastructure that they need to enjoy themselves. Yeah,
5: I, I really don't know much uh, uh, about this. I see it on the news every now and then that. Uh, uh, Huge uh, number of puppies are, are seized, and that they'd be living in uh, terrible conditions, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, is it something that is commonplace? Is this widespread? This uh, uh, animal abuse?
0: I don't know what I'm saying it's widespread, but pup, pups are are making a very large price at the moment, and pups of certain breeds are very, very valuable. And uh, obviously, you know, when there's monetary gain, people will breed, will breed, will breed to that. So you know there is there is um, there is factory there is puppy farms operating now which are very large in size and as I said I just don't think you know if they won't have that many dogs you would actually need uh, a super infrastructure to be able to be able to deal with them properly and in my experience um, none of those farms at the moment would have that infrastructure to deal with dogs properly mm. and as you say you know pups have been seized and mm. some you know some horrific cases have come to light mm. and push um, again you know the consumer out there is is you know pays um mm. large prices for these pups and um when you have that happening you will have people who will try to excite the situation and, you know if yeah. you know, all breeding establishments happen this way i just want to stress very very clearly and there's some breeding establishments there that have run, you know, to the highest possible standards. Mm. But if you're going to have, as you said there, a few minutes for 500 breeding breaches, uh, it's very, very hard to maintain standards. Yeah,
5: it's very upsetting, it's very upsetting to think that uh, people are, are that cruel, uh, and uh, I'm not sure if there's any other way of putting it. Uh, you've... Uh Put your report together and recommendations. As you said, the laws that are there need to be enforced better, and some of the legislation needs to be overhauled. What happens now?
2: Well, um,
0: Senator Bylan has been pushing this report and to. She was the, I suppose the main lady that pushed to get this report um onto the floor of the committee and get it through. She's been to the Senate in the next couple of weeks, and to hopefully come into the dodge shortly afterwards and the various ministers, you know, will have to answer questions on it. And I, you know, I suppose I would say this, I said to chair but' we'll put would all together, but I think it's a very common-sense report. The recommendations, they are common-sense. They're based on improving welfare of animals. It's not clean it's not in any way, and anyone that's looking after dogs in a reasonable fashion has absolutely nothing to fear from the recommendations. And I think ministers will embrace the recommendations of the report and get the legislation improved or implemented where, where it needs
5: to be. Okay. Yeah. well, if uh, the dogs are in the care of anybody, you'd hope that they'd act in a human way. And I I think uh, that is uh, the objective of your report and the recommendations in it. Uh, Thank you indeed for joining us.
0: To go to the vast, vast majority of dogs. Mm. Looked after superbly in the country, no. and it's an only a small minority sure. that report, Recommendations are trying to yeah. are trying to yeah. um, yeah. um change. It's a,
5: a hugely important point, and uh, hope everybody hears that point loud and clear. Thank you, indeed, as I say though, for joining us uh, this morning, Finifal TD Jackie Cattle is uh, the chairlak of uh, the Joint Rockers Committee on Agriculture, Food, and the Marine.
4: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed
8: on,
9: on LMFM. FM.
5: Now, yesterday, the Dáil heard some very serious concerns about how some Ukrainian refugees have been treated in County Louth.
11: It's women and children we're talking about, and I accept that the policy of the department is to assist them all, but what happened in Killarney is entirely unacceptable from my perspective. And my question to you, Minister, is that will you set up an independent advocacy service for Ukrainians who have complaints serious complaints about the way that they're being treated. And if my experience, when I sent a complaint to your department without prejudice, looking for an independent inquiry by the department into it, what happened was the service provider and the county council went to those women and their children and told them they shouldn't have gone to a public rep, that we had no role in dealing with this issue. And in fact the people had been shouted at, intimidated, they believe, punished for coming to me, And also, one of the complaints they had was a service provider employee was threatening that they would be sent back to the Ukraine if they didn't withdraw their complaints. That is entirely and totally unacceptable. And We need an independent advocacy service that Ukrainians, and these are mothers and children, will be properly and appropriately listened to and, and independently investigate serious complaints. And what happened in County Loud is unacceptable. And the, you know, the department hasn't come back to me, No, it's not you personally, Minister. They haven't come back to me with an answer as how they're going to deal with these complaints. And that's over six weeks ago now. Minister, to
8: well, Deputy, that's a, that's a serious issue you raised. And just to say to you, and I, I hope it's known to all Deputies, if a serious issue like if that comes up, come to me you know, come to me. That's a serious, that's something I need to know about. So I'm happy and I'm happy to talk to you after PQs about that particular issue and we'll, we'll look to get a resolution.
5: That's the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman. He was responding uh, to Fine Gael TD for Louth and East Meath, Ferguson O'Dowd, who dropped... That bombshell, at least what I would consider to be a bombshell, in the doll yesterday, the details of what happened, when it happened, and where it happened are very vague at the moment. But to think that the council, as well as the service provider, went to women and children who have fled from a war zone and told them not to go to a public representative with concerns, and that the same women and children have been shouted at and intimidated by someone and that the same women and children have been threatened to be sent back to ukraine really beggars belief uh, there is a complete disrespect for the rights of those people in that story as it was presented to the doll by Fergus O'Dowd. Now, Ukrainian refugees have a, a lot of rights uh, and their rights are spelled out for them in a, a guide that has been available for some time from the Children's Rights Alliance called Know Your Rights Guide. Coincidentally, that guide has just been published in Ukrainian and in Russian. We're joined by Julia Hearn, who's uh, the Legal Policy and Services uh, Director with uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. A uh, very good morning to you, Julia, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, as I say, the publication of your guide in Ukrainian uh, and Russian coincides with what was said in the doll yesterday, but if ever there was proof that there was a need to spell out people's rights to them, I think we heard it yesterday.
1: Indeed, Michael, and good morning. And you're right. I mean, it is incredibly important that all people, especially those who are in situations like the Ukrainian children who are here and their families, know what their rights are and really importantly, know that they do have a right to complain and where they can get support. And that is what we have done in our Know Your Rights Guide. As you mentioned, it's been around for quite some time. What it is, it's a plain English guide that should be able to be accessed by anyone. And it sets out in every area of a child's life what their rights are, what they can do if their rights are not being respected, who they can go to for help and support and also where they can get more information. So really, it's critically important that all people, but especially those who are coming to our country who may not know the lay of the land have access to this guide and we're really happy that we've been able to translate that guide into both Ukrainian and Russian Hmm. for those people coming here with the support of Tusla.
5: Yeah, I was looking at it yesterday and it looked like double Dutch to me but I was delighted to have it and pass it on to some Ukrainians that I, I know Uh, And I think that there are uh, language problems uh, for people coming to this country, particularly from uh, Ukraine, uh, and uh, they may not be able to follow this conversation, but there's a lot of people listening to us uh, who have befriended and are assisting Ukrainians, uh, and perhaps they could give them the guide because uh, when they receive it, it's obviously in their own language.
1: Exactly. And what it does is that it looks at every single area of the child's life. So as people are here longer, more of the guide will probably become become more important to them. So, for example, it looks at not only their rights here as Ukrainian refugees, but it also then looks at, you know, if they're in the education system and the usual things that happen that may happen for children in the education system, what they can do in those situations. Mm. So we're really happy to be able to translate it. And we know then as well that some of our colleagues in other organisations, such as the Irish Refugee Council and the Immigrant Council of Ireland have set up dedicated um, dedicated supports for Ukrainian refugees in their own language. So not only is there our guide that's there, and we also have a legal information helpline that runs to English, then there are Ukrainian uh, helplines and there are Ukrainian supports directly available. So yeah. if instances are happening like were, that were raised in the Dáil, they can be alerted and they can be They can be engaged to help support children and families.
5: Okay, Uh, I think the first chapter of uh, the guide is uh, relating uh, to the right uh, to be treated equally. Uh, Mm -hmm. And if you're living here uh, and you've come here from Ukraine or elsewhere and uh, you have the right to be treated equally, I take it that means you have the right to go to a public representative when you have concerns.
1: You do indeed and you know I mean I think you know it was very well articulated by the public representatives in the clip you just played there earlier that people do have a right to go to a public representative with any concerns they have and really importantly I think you know our public representatives are really helpful to people and they know the systems and they're able to help people navigate the systems when things go wrong for them. So they're a great resource to families and to children and young people across the country and it's really important that people know that they have a right to do that Mm. but also when they're not being treated equally or when there are things that go wrong they do have a right to make complaints and it is really important that no one is no one is afraid to make a complaint and that people feel that there is support out there for them when they can make complaints.
5: Mm. Uh, And it's not a a privilege to be here Uh, they have a a right to be here and they have a right to be treated equally they have a, a right to be treated with dignity that means that they shouldn't be shouted at or intimidated.
1: Indeed. And, you know, as you say, they have a right to be here. They've been given a legal right and entitlement to be in this country. And with that then comes that they have a right to be treated without being being discriminated against, but also in the way that they're not, as you say, shouted at or treated in the manner that was described. And I think it is really important that if that is happening for anyone who is listening or for anyone who knows someone who is listening, that they know that there are supports out there, that they can make complaints and that there are people out there who can support them. So really I suppose what we want to see is people not deterred from making complaints if there are complaints to be made across any area of a child's life.
5: Okay uh, incidentally Fergus O'Dowd uh, wasn't uh, available to us. We're hoping uh, that uh, he'll be able to give us more detail on this issue that he raised in uh, the doll on the programme next week and I, I'm not asking you to comment on it specifically because uh, we don't know the detail uh, but uh, the impression I got from what he 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 told to the doll yesterday was clear, that some hothead uh, was uh, acting as a service provider for people who were seeking refuge from a, a war situation, uh, and took it upon themselves to threaten these people uh, by repatriating them if they didn't tow the line. Uh, It is not possible, uh, just to make this point uh, in relation, uh, in a a general term, Julie, for anybody, uh, to tell anybody who's come here from Ukraine that they'll be sent home, that they'll be repatriated or deported, is it?
1: As you say, we won't comment on the specific case because we don't have enough details, but in general terms, if someone has a legal right to be here in Ireland, that is given to them by the government, and the only people who can revoke that are the government. That couldn't be a service provider, so as you say that, you know, a service provider cannot threaten should not threaten to repatriate someone because they cannot do that. The only people who have that power within within the state are the government or the courts. Mm. And when it comes to Ukrainian refugees they've been given a legal right to be here so they cannot be repatriated by a service provider.
5: Okay. Julie just for people listening to us uh, this morning uh, if they have contact uh, with uh, Ukrainian refugees uh, or people who speak Russian uh, the guide is is available in both languages now through the Children's Rights Alliance website Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll direct them there. It's called Know Your Rights Guide. uh, Very easy to access uh, and uh, I certainly would encourage uh, everybody to pass it on to uh, people who are trying to make this country their home. Uh, And uh, well done. It's uh, very timely. uh, Unfortunately, given what we heard yesterday, but uh, well done generally uh, on making this available to people because uh, we should all be uh, aware of our rights uh, that we're entitled to. Julie, thank you though for joining us this morning. Julia Hearn, Legal Policy and Services Director with uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael
8: Michael Reed on LMFM.
5: 44 countries around uh, the world are suffering with serious or alarming levels of hunger. It's reaching catastrophic proportions uh, according to the 2022 Global Hunger Index, which has been published by Concern Worldwide and a German charity, Welt Hunger Hilfe. Let's uh, speak uh, to Rachel Nijkelekor, who is Head of Advocacy with Concern. Good morning to you, Rachel, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. We're talking about uh, some very serious problems in the world. I'm sure a, a lot of people like me, would have uh, watched the map on television last night and uh, there's some countries outside of of Africa, Pakistan, India, Afghanistan, uh, but when you look at at that map, there's hardly a a corner of Africa uh, that hasn't uh, been uh, in trouble with uh, people uh, being fed, basically. Uh, We are looking at very serious problems.
7: That's true. Thanks, Michael, for taking the time to discuss this. It is a really serious issue and uh, I think it's important to state that, you know, in 2019, we were seeing some progress and that the the impact of COVID-19 has been so severe that now we're looking at these really shocking figures. Um, And it is, as you said, then you combine climate change with that. And of course, sub-Saharan Africa in particular is so badly affected uh, from um, West Africa, in Burkina Faso, right across to places like Somalia, where we're expecting that, you know, that the country is now very, very close to, mm. to famine conditions.
5: No rain for four years. Uh, we're looking at, at conditions similar to uh, the big famine of uh, the 1980s yeah, absolutely. in Ethiopia. Yeah.
7: Mm. Yes, I, I think it's unfathomable mm. for Irish people to actually imagine what four years of no rain uh, would look like. But uh, oh. And even for us. You know in in the work that that we do, the fact that we're into the thirtieth month of just bone dry, no rain, and the the rains that are expected at the end of this month and the next rainy season, which is expected in March, are both forecast to to fail and it's it, you know our learning is increasing on this so when when there's no rain, obviously you know everything dries up, but the land gets so hot yeah that what we're seeing, obviously, you know, the animals have died. There are just millions of animals who have died over the past couple of months. But over the last three weeks in Somalia alone, a million people have moved from very rural areas, people who would have been pastoralists, who, dep- you know, depended on themselves. They didn't yeah. need assistance from anybody else. They had their their livestock. The livestock are dead. People are not trained or they have no, you know, access to any other services or jobs or mm. anything like that. So they're moving to urban areas. Yeah. And that's where we're seeing now the huge pressure to be able to provide food assistance.
5: Yeah, and it, it, it's very different uh, than the 1980s, which was compounded by war with Eritrea, wasn't it? Uh, this is simply a, a matter of climate.
9: Well,
7: I, 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 it, the, the climate impact now is uh, is is what I think is is really exposing the fact that years and years of conflict in some of these places means that there's no capacities to deal with mm. these huge shocks. But then these huge shocks are coming, you know, very, very quickly. Somalia is still in conflict. Um, Ethiopia obviously has a uh, a conflict in Tigray. But Ethiopia is a country that, outside of um, internal conflict, had been stabilised, the situation with Eritrea, like you said, in the 80s. Things have, have changed dramatically. And you look at a city like Addis Ababa and it's, you know, vibrant and... Yeah fantastic and and then you see what the um what climate change is doing to parts of the country um where there's just there's just simply there's no resources there's there's a there's no water and of course urbanization then you know no different to what we're seeing here people migrating towards cities and the cost of being able to survive in a city is so high so extreme poverty then increases and, and people either the World Bank has, has revised figures on extreme poverty in the last couple of weeks that people, the, the increased numbers of people who are living on less than $2.15 a day uh, 828
5: million people undernourished
7: Yes Um and again, so if you put that in 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 broader figures, it's close to a billion people on the planet who are not getting enough food on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the the, the global all the, mo- all the money
5: in the world, Rachel. All the wealth in the world. Yes, it's incredible.
7: Yes, I mean, it's the the inequality, and I think that's what COVID exposed. Very very barely. <laughs> that yeah. Inequality is such a curse. Um, and what the Global Hunger Index does, it, it measures undernutrition um, and and malnutrition in, in countries. And what you can see from, from the report, not to get into the data yeah. too much, is you can see where people are flourishing and people aren't. And of yeah. course, that's rich areas and, and poor areas and so on. And that's across the world. So I think what, what has happened from COVID-19 is it has exposed so many... Um, so many of the, the the real weak points in in how the world works, and of course, not a shock to anybody. But when it when you when you have something like a major pandemic, then it means that people fall through the cracks so quickly. People yeah. who are poor already, who have very few resources, suddenly have nothing because they've spent those resources in the first couple of months of a global shutdown. Yeah. And then you put climate change on top of that. Um, and as I said, you know, we're seeing people in. In Ethiopia, in Kenya, who would have been wealthy farmers? You know, my own colleagues yeah. uh, telling me that w- people who who w- would never have had to even think of asking anyone for assistance, and they're watching watching their their livestock go from hundreds mm. to maybe five, and then hoping that they'll have enough milk to feed their kids and then those animals yeah. die and then the family has to to move to look for for shelter. We're we're, very, we're really fairly started.
5: predictable, though, aren't we? I mean, people as a species were fairly predictable and we tend to react uh to disaster rather than preempt it and prevent it.
7: Yes, and I think if you if you look at Ukraine now and again you look at the response to Ukraine and the, the, the political response, because everyone is affected by it, I think the one lesson coming from this is that we can't afford conflicts in the world. We just can't afford it. And so that has to change in terms of the political efforts to try and do more to prevent other conflicts from happening and to try and solve the number of conflicts that are are still ongoing. And like you said, the map of, mm. uh, of yeah. Africa, you've Central Africa Republic, um you have mali you have ongoing conflicts mm. in the democratic republic of congo and then in the middle east as well you have you know conflicts bubbling away but then if you put climate change on top of that again i think that's the other piece mm. that we should be looking at prevention so that that is really important that we're we're preventing yeah. and adapting and yeah. the adaptation piece gets harder when you're looking at months and months of no rain and you then you're in survival
5: and humanitarian systems. Uh, I know that you're looking for all governments to sign up to the principle uh, that everybody should have uh, the right to food. People can help Concern directly, uh, but we have to leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed for joining Thanks us. Thanks
7: so much, Michael.
5: Thank you indeed. Rachel Nikelikor is Head of Advocacy with Concern. That's our programme for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. <laughs>
4: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087-660-4237.